This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, March 5th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. For months, as Joe Biden stumbled through gaffes and questions about his voting record and disappointing results in the early primaries, he's been making the same pitch to the American people. He can unite older voters, people of color, and moderates into a coalition that can defeat Donald Trump. The first indication that he was right came last Saturday in South Carolina, where he won every county and captured more than twice as many votes as his nearest competitor. Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar quickly suspended their campaigns. And then came Super Tuesday. It's a good night. It's a good night. And it seems to be getting even better. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. Biden won in 10 states, not only in the South, where he was favored because of his popularity among black voters, but also in Massachusetts and Minnesota. So I'm here to report, we are very much alive! And make no mistake about it, this campaign will send Donald Trump packing. This campaign is taking off, join us! Evan Osnos, a New Yorker staff writer, joins me to discuss the sudden revival of Biden's presidential campaign and what to expect in the final months leading up to the election. Welcome, Evan. Thanks, Dorothy. I wanted to talk to you today because you have a somewhat contrarian perspective on Joe Biden, (laughs) whom you've been closely watching since 2014 when you had a series of interviews with him for the magazine. He's diminished considerably since then, as everyone keeps pointing out. He's old. He's got these dangerous landmines from over 40 years in public life. He's run this weak campaign, which has felt all too much like a call to a return to a past era of politics. But you also see in him a kind of remarkable capacity to change. And I thought you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I have always been interested in Joe Biden's persistence, his sheer durability. And let's point out the obvious. Durability in Washington is now not a particularly attractive political attribute. In a way, what we just saw is actually only the latest chapter in a pattern that has followed Joe Biden through his political life, which is that there are all of these points where his career has taken this sort of sharp turn that you didn't expect. Obviously, when he ran for president in 1988, he was drummed out of the race because he plagiarized a speech. People sort of at the time said, well, maybe that's there's not going to see much more of Joe Biden. He went back, continued to move along in his career. You get to 2008. He ran a pretty unspectacular uh, bid for the presidency. And then all of a sudden, Barack Obama comes in and taps him to be VP. So all of a sudden, you have a whole different chapter in his life. And through that period, he's become a piece of furniture in American political life. The fact that he has been able to springboard out of all of these moments in his career is a credit to the fact that he has generated a tremendous infrastructure, political infrastructure that lies below the surface. You see that partly organizationally with his relationship with Jim Clyburn, who was that very important South Carolina congressman who endorsed him and really drove him to success in uh, that crucial moment in the campaign. And then you see it in subtler ways 
where voters at the last minute, you see this in the exit polls, people who chose late in the game on Super Tuesday chose Joe Biden. They tended to gravitate towards him. And I was really struck by a comment that Tim Ryan, the congressman from uh, from Ohio, and he said about Biden's ability to connect with what he called the Whole Foods moms. And these are people who, in a sense, he described them as a silent majority of people who want Donald Trump out of office. And, and Tim Ryan said this to the Washington Post. He said they don't want to get into fights with people about it. They don't want to be on social media about it. But they're appalled at Trump's behavior. And that has turned out to be to Joe Biden's great benefit. You know, just last week, pundits and pollsters, it seems to me, were making exactly the same mistake they made in 2016, very confidently and totally inaccurately predicting winners and losers. So, you know, virtually everybody saw Bernie Sanders as the best place candidate to win the nomination. What did everyone fail to consider? Well, there were a few things that got in the way. I'll give you one interesting piece of data that really jumped out at me. If you look in Texas, Michael Bloomberg was pouring tremendous amounts of money into Texas. He spent $56 million in advertising, uh, $190 per vote is what that works out to. Bernie Sanders also spent big on advertising, nowhere near Bloomberg levels, but he spent $6.43 per vote. And Biden spent $89,000 in advertising in Texas. That works out to $0.12 cents per vote. So clearly, this was not simply about who was spending money where. We were getting into this mode of thinking that uh, that Bernie Sanders had that magical combination you hear people on TV talk about all the time, momentum, money, you know, movement, organization. One of the bits of received wisdom that we often hear about is that that Bernie Sanders has made great headway among Latino voters. And that's true. There is a lot of hesitation among young Latino voters about the Obama-Biden administration's deportation policy. But in Texas, to again use that as a great example, Latino voters there tend to be a little more conservative than they are nationally. And so you see that they tended to go uh, towards towards Bernie Sanders in lesser numbers. It, you know, it's, it's inevitable that these kinds of conventional wisdoms take hold, but they can often blind us to some of the undertow that is beginning to exert greater force on the campaign than we recognize. In addition to their policy differences, we, we have stability and continuity versus revolution. Uh, Biden and Sanders have very different strategies to win the nomination and then to trounce Donald Trump. Biden is a coalition builder. Sanders, like Trump, relies almost entirely on his populist base. How do you see this playing out in the coming primaries, especially now that just moments ago, as it turns out, as we're recording, Elizabeth Warren has suspended her campaign. Yeah. And so now, of course, this is moving so fast that it, within a few minutes or hours, we may know if Elizabeth Warren has endorsed Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. But that question is is crucial because she then uh, obviously is uh, able to bring potentially a huge realm of voters to either one of those campaigns that could signal a significant advantage. Bernie Sanders has been saying from the beginning that his strategy is that he's going to bring in younger voters. And the simple fact is he just hasn't done it yet. Uh, he acknowledged it as much the other day after Super Tuesday. He said, we just haven't gone as far as we thought we could in getting those inroads. I, I think there's also another key piece of this, which is, you know, somebody described it the other day well, which is that this choice at the moment between 
Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders can feel to some people as if it's a choice between getting Donald Trump out of office as the most important priority or addressing inequality as the most important problem. Because those are, in a sense, those are how these two choices have been described by their candidates. And so it's at the moment, at least, it may not be this way all the way through the fall, but at the moment, people are basically saying getting Donald Trump out of office is their priority. It's also worth noting, though, and I'm sure Biden will be making much of this. You know, he has his own very longstanding populist pitch. And yes, it is more appealing to older white working class voters than than Bernie's populist pitch. It is important, though, nonetheless, and could bring over some of the swing voters and some Republican voters who are disaffected with Trump. Yeah. And I and he's going to he's going to try. I mean, in some ways, I think Joe Biden finds himself kind of surprised that he's the voice of the establishment here. Obviously, he has to be. He is. He's been in Washington for a very long time. He was vice president of the United States for eight years. Uh, But he, he oftentimes when he's on the stump over the years, he has tried to present himself as something like more of an outsider. Um. You know, I think there is also another candidate in this race, and that's that's Donald Trump. And what Trump does over the course of the next few months will will perhaps shape how each of these two candidates is able to present a policy driven pitch versus a, an appeal for unity against Donald Trump. And that part we just don't have any way to know at this point. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a big question about money. And yesterday, Mike Bloomberg dropped out of the race after a very brief, dismal performance as a candidate when everyone was all over him for trying to, you know, buy the presidency, essentially. He spent more than, I believe, half a billion dollars on ads. So that just didn't work. And now Bloomberg, too, has endorsed Biden and he promises to throw his money behind him uh, and behind whoever wins the Democratic nomination. But the Democrats have so far to go before catching up with Trump's fundraising machine. And Trump is focusing almost entirely on social media, not on old-fashioned TV ads. So how is that likely to look? Yeah, it's going to be really uh, an an unusual scenario coming up where you have, if Michael Bloomberg does what he says he's going to do, he's going to turn this battleship of funding and organization and television ads and online ads towards Joe Biden. And, you know, somebody described it the other day, a professor uh, said that this is likely to be a superpower, super PAC, the likes of which we've never seen. And that's really, it's a mistake, perhaps, for us to assume that the failure of the Bloomberg candidacy, which was so dramatic, is uh, a demonstration that that money can't be a game changer in the race. Because I think Mm -hmm. he failed for a lot of reasons. In fact, you know, the single most dispositive factor in his trajectory was Elizabeth Warren dismantling him on stage at a debate. Although in the end, that didn't do her much good either. But It, it didn't, but it changed the contours of the race. And, and I think one could argue that um, 
Bloomberg's greatest contribution will turn out to have been that he's going to turn this spigot of money on behalf of Joe Biden in a way that Donald Trump is going to have a hard time uh, easily responding to. I mean, there's a reason why Trump has been addled and agitated about Biden throughout this process, enough that he you know, imperiled his own presidency by recruiting Ukraine to try to dig up dirt on the Bidens. The fact is, Biden with Bloomberg money is a formidable combination, and and that's going to be something that Donald Trump has not faced before. Yeah, and speaking of Ukraine, obviously the the Hunter Biden issue is going to be resurfacing in a big, big way, and one wonders how Trump, you know, will be able to exploit that or whether Biden is capable of turning it around as he has tried to do throughout his campaign and saying that this was the issue that got Donald Trump impeached. That's true. And the fact is, Joe Biden has tremendous liabilities, the same ones that he has had throughout this process. I mean, there's also the problem of Joe Biden on the stump, where he's prone to the same kinds of gaffes that give people concern about whether he's got the, the stamina and the fitness to get through this campaign and to you know, occupy the presidency in the way people want. And, and the Hunter Biden questions won't go away, particularly when you've got two of the candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who have made questions of Washington corruption, such a central feature of American politics now, um, and whether they end up attaching to Joe Biden in a way that drags him down among Democrats is a huge factor in whether or not he can actually get the nomination, I think. It is dispiriting, too, that this race began with the most diverse field in Democratic history, but has ended up with these two white septuagenarian frontrunners. Let's start by sort of talking about what that tells us about the political moment we're in now. Yeah, it's a puzzle because if you had asked anybody what this race is going to look like, you would have said, well, finally, this is going to break out of these rigid patterns of the same old candidates who all look the same way. And what you saw, of course, is not that. Um, I think the fact that we ended up where we are with two older white men on this stage is a real indictment of the process, the process of, of forming uh, a, a front runner and eventually getting a nominee because it has just at point after point, it has been very difficult for people to break through all of the institutional and cultural barriers that have stood in the way of candidates of greater diversity. I, and I couldn't agree more. And the, it's also worth pointing out that at the beginning of this race, when, when there were a cast of thousands, there were some very good candidates who, who ran very solid campaigns. Exactly. And more than ever this year, the choice of a vice presidential candidate will be crucial. And I do think that Biden is also aware of his deficits as a candidate. So I would just wonder what you think about that. Doesn't he have to consider uh, choosing a, say, a, a younger woman to run with him? Yeah. And there is a lot of talk about that. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in Stacey Abrams. I think there's a clear recognition on the part of the Biden campaign that they need to, as rapidly as possible, envelop other parts of the electorate into their universe. So that's why you had as fast as they possibly could getting endorsements from Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke. You know, this was this was a, an effort to say as fast as they as they could 
Uh, we hear you. We understand that you may not be wildly enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but we also recognize that this is a you know, coalition candidacy, for lack of a better term. This is a time when you you need to try to bring people in that way. You know, we all know VP picks as a statistical matter don't tend to determine the outcome of a race that much, but they do matter in a year like this, where you have a where you have a much older candidate uh, than people might have been expecting to have at the end. And eventually you will have Barack Obama out on the campaign trail, if it is Joe Biden, uh, reminding people what they liked about the two of them running the country. Exactly. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders will face a somewhat similar uh, challenge when it comes to choosing a VP, which is they have to find somebody who is close enough to them that it looks like they didn't sell out their values while at the same time being far enough away that they can encompass this two-sided electorate in the Democratic Party. It is not easy because if you're Joe Biden and you go for somebody who is a thoroughgoing progressive who uh, really speaks to those ideas, you run the risk of alienating these centrist Democrats in places like Tennessee and Texas that you just managed to win over. So that is a very, very difficult choice, I think. Thanks so much, Evan. To be continued. <laughs> that, that I'm sure. Thanks, Dorothy. Evan Osnos is a New Yorker staff writer and the author of Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for NewYorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.